You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we hear from two veterans of the biotech and pharmaceutical market, one with a mutual fund that invests in equities and uses options to tailor the trades to his liking, and another whose private fund purchases actual drug royalty streams to provide uncorrelated returns to investors. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Friday, April 17th. I'm James Brown with CASA. And today on Alternative Thinking, we have Ian Rahim with Next Edge Capital and Ali Alagaband with Sagard Holdings. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Yeah, you can start, Ali. Thanks, James. Uh, great to be here this morning. And um, so I've been uh, in the healthcare investment business for uh, the past 18 years. I started at a firm called DRI Capital uh, back in 2002. Uh, where we raised uh, over $3 billion um, over 17 years, and we invested that capital in uh, healthcare royalty investments. And then most recently, in January of 2019, I um, came to Sigard Holdings as a partner uh, with Raja Manchanda and David McNaughton, and we are pursuing uh, essentially the same strategy uh, going forward. Wow, it's interesting. So, what um, we haven't seen much of this. What what is it like a drug royalty? How how do you how do you set work for investment purposes? Yeah. So uh, the way to think about it is, um, you know, we talk about an innovation value chain, um, which a drug has to go through before it eventually comes to market. So, it starts with uh, an inventor at. Um, in a lab at a research institution or a research hospital. And that inventor will uh, come up with some sort of a cell line or molecule that has uh, a therapeutic benefit. And then the technology transfer offices at these institutions will take that work and patent uh, those inventions. And, and then it is the job of those technology transfer offices to then um, uh, commercialize or, or work with industry to, to start commercializing that intellectual property. So they will license uh, the, that intellectual property or IP, as we call it. They, they will license that IP to a small biotech company, for example, which will take that work, um, start putting money behind it and start taking... Uh, th- that potential uh, drug um, uh, through clinical trials. Um, and in exchange for that license from the university, uh, the biotech company will promise to pay the university a royalty on future sales of that product once it has been commercialized. So so now the small biotech company will, let's say, uh, spend time and money and take the product through phase one and phase two clinical trials. They will, in turn, uh, down the road, maybe turn around and license their work to a larger biotech or larger pharmaceutical company that has the means to take the product through 
more extensive and expensive phase three clinical trials and eventually file uh, that work um, and that data with the regulators, which would be the FDA in the United States, for example, uh, and then hopefully get the okay from the FDA to uh, bring the product to market. So now you've gone through many years of development, uh, starting from the lab all the way to FDA approval. Now the product is selling uh, and start, and um, patients are being treated with the product and a percentage of those sales are now being paid as a royalty to uh, the various stakeholders in that innovation value chain. So the biotech company, the technology transfer office and the inventor are now going to receive essentially royalty checks every quarter for as long as that product is on the market and selling and, and treating patients. So where we come in is once that royalty stream is flowing, we can go to each one of those constituents, whether it's the individual inventor, whether it's the technology transfer office, or whether it's the small biotech company and, uh, biotech company, and we can buy those future cash flows from them for an upfront uh, uh, cash payment. Wow. So it's kind of like these universities using the, uh, that's a really good name, the tech transfer office to kind of monetize the research that they're doing. That's right. Um, that's right. And so do the biotech companies do their own research and development or do they mostly outsource it to the, to the universities and, uh, and have them work on it? It's interesting because, um, you know, there are companies that have their own uh, R&D engine. So biotech companies and large pharma companies certainly do a lot of the work in-house. Um, but universities and research institutions certainly play a pretty large role uh, in terms of um, intellectual property that comes out of those in institutions. So they, they will continue to play a, a big role in the uh, innovation value chain going forward. Um, and certainly just the business model across the industry has really changed, uh, I would say, over the past 10, 15 years, uh, whereas before you had the large uh, uh, healthcare companies like the Pfizer's, for example, um, you know, tr trying to really just, um, um, you know, don't bother unless it is invented here type mentality and everything was done in-house. Uh, you know, that business model has really changed now uh, and uh, and the larger uh, companies are now relying more and more on the more nimble biotech companies, uh, as well as uh, the research institution to replenish those R&D pipelines. So, and, you know, I expect that to continue for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of like oil and gas. You got the wildcatters and they sell it up to the, uh, to the producers and that, and the guys who actually extract it. Um, and on extraction, I guess, Eden, you have a, uh, a bit of a different, uh, different tact, uh, along the, uh, the pharmaceutical and biotech pipeline. Uh, let's hear about you and what, what you're doing. Sure. Well, James, Paul, thank you for having me and delighted to be chatting about this interesting topic in topical times. But uh, I've been in the industry for over 25 years. I joined RBC in 1994 um, as a derivatives analyst, um, uh, even though my background is in molecular genetics. Um, so I started out doing, uh, I was there to design hedges, to um, price out uh, embedded options and convertible bonds and hedge it away, things like that. And then I was given the mandate uh, to manage their healthcare across their equity and balance fund. And eventually I became the PM for the growth fund. 
along the way, sort of managing their, their hedging of currency, bond options, and, and equity exposure, and so on. Um, it's actually curious that uh, uh, there is one degree of separation of, uh, between Ali and myself that he's unaware of, and that is um, in 2000, I was the second largest institutional shareholder in drug royalty. And when it was acquired, I, I loved the model. Um, and I was saddened to see it actually get acquired because I thought it would it was a terrific model ahead of its time. Uh, but c'est la vie. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I managed uh, institutional four, four mandates at RBC, uh, growth, value, hedging, and so on. Uh, over a billion in assets for about a decade. And then I moved to Jovian. I did, I uh, managed a, a, a variety of exposures. Uh, so I, I was I was managing 14 or 15 ETFs, um, a lot of it equity exposure. At one point, we were like a quarter of the open interest of options in Canada. Uh, when they sold to Mary, a South Korean company, uh, about five years ago, I decided uh, on at the behest of a few investment advisors in Canada that I should get back to my knitting and um, and launched the biotech fund. And I was fortunate um, to be launching with Next Edge uh, Capital, who are, you know, very progressive in, 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 uh, in looking for alternative ways of managing assets and getting, um, you know, managers with novel skills. So uh, here I am today, I manage the Next Biotech Plus Fund. So how did, how did a molecular... Uh... Genetics Genesis become uh, a derivatives uh, analyst at, at RBC. It seems like I mean, there's some math, but it does, I'm not sure if there's a there's a direct link there. How does that work? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I I traded my way through university, and um, after the '87 crash, uh, I realized I had to start looking into these interesting thing called derivatives, and so I started creating um, pricing models for derivatives because they they really intrigued me, and you know. A lot of people don't put them together, but there is a lot of optionality with biotech stocks because you think about it, a biotech stock, you've got these binary outcomes at different points, different stages of development. And so there you value these, you know, risk rewards as an option. What is the probability that this happens? If that happens, this happens and so on. And, and oftentimes they behave like biotech stocks behave like options. It has that asymmetric payoff. You you can lose what you um, what you invest in, but you can get you know on a potentially good outcome ten times what you invest in, and 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 often I and 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 the blend was good because it allowed me to use options to hedge these binary events. So as we got into these very risky binary outcomes as to clinical trials and so on, I'd be able to hedge with put options, or I'd be able to swap out of the stock into a call option. So it gives me that flexibility in in a relatively risky sector. Wow, so that's uh, that sounds pretty cool. Um, I love how you've uh, kind of blend the two together there. <laughs> and then for uh, maybe Ali, for, for your 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 structure of your fund, is it um, what was it more like a PE structure or is it because I'm thinking these these investments that you have are probably fairly chunky and not that liquid. And have a fairly maybe infinite time time frame. Uh, but how do you structure the investment for uh, for investors? Uh, yeah, so th- so it, it is um, essentially a private equity uh, type structure where we have LPs and we call capital whenever we need um, the money to to make the investments. Um, but 
basically the the way uh, these investments typically work is by the time a product has made it to market uh, and has been commercialized, on average, there is about eight to twelve years of uh, patent life left uh, for that product. Ah, okay. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so assuming we make an investment uh, and buy those royalties, let's say on day one, we should expect, you know, obviously depending on on the way deals are, the deal is structured. So there are different nuances and different ways you can structure deals. But on a very typical deal, we would expect on average to receive royalties on a quarterly basis, basis let's say for the next eight to ten years. Um, so. Um, the, the fund vehicle is structured uh, such that uh, we're able to do that over time. And, and we actually, um, we have set ourselves up as more of, a, more of an evergreen permanent capital structure to uh, be able to accommodate um, that underlying uh, structure of, of these royalties. Oh, cool. And then, so is there, at the end of the, like toward the end of the term, do you just, do you, do you just hold it until the last absolute last dollar, or do you kind of resell it out to someone for like a runoff company in that, or, or um, what what happens at the end? And I guess it's at least not seventy five years after the dentor's death, like a like a like a book or something like that, which is nice. So you actually have a, a terminal date when these these patents run out. Eh? That's right. That's right. They, these are essentially self amortizing assets. So once the patent expires, our royalties essentially go to zero. What is great about these assets is that um, you know typically. These royalties are being paid to us, um, and the royalties are generated based on sales of um, very large, uh, multi-hundred million dollar, sometimes billion dollar uh, products that are being marketed by, uh, you know, very large companies like Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Sanofi and AstraZeneca and so forth and so on. So, once you have a portfolio of these royalties. Um, uh, in place, then uh, these portfolios are very readily financeable. So what we actually do is we go and we can issue investment grade debt uh, collateralized by our portfolio of these assets. Uh, yeah, so uh, we issue that debt and uh, that debt is typically purchased by insurance companies uh, and uh, usually rated you know triple B or better. Um, and and then uh, we take the proceeds from that debt issuance and we return that to our investors. Um, so it, it accelerates the return of capital to our investors uh, for sure. And then it also obviously um, enhances our the equity returns uh, to our investors. And then um, for a given portfolio, that's exactly right. We just sit tight um, until the cash flows round down to zero and, and then you're done with, with those assets. And Eden, how about yours... Uh... Are you investing in the uh, the larger caps that that Ali kind of stills to, or is it the the biotech? What's your what's your kind of uh, sweet spot there? And like how and how would you how would you structure a t- trade to get the uh, to get the downside protection? Sure. Uh, so I focus primarily. So generally, from discovery to commercialization, there are multiple phases in a drug cycle. So you go through preclinical. Phase one, phase two, phase three, and then commercialization. Um, I focus primarily on post phase two companies. Uh, so, you know, most of the period that I own a company for two or three years is during that phase three period. Reason being, it's because 
only, the failure rate on controlled phase two trials is about 70%, right? Very high failure rate because you're then finally checking your drug against the standard of care in a blinded fashion. When you've survived that and you know you, know you legitimately have a drug, and th at that point, I do my research as to what the commercial prospects of this drug could be if it were to hit the market. So I speak to key opinion leaders, stuff like that, do my research. And if I think that this drug post-phase two could turn out to be a commercial success, I will invest in the company, own it through phase three, and, uh, and sometimes into commercialization. And you know, over that period of time, the success rate for a phase three trial rises to about 60% versus 30% for a phase two trial. So I, I like owning it uh, in terms of a risk reward, a more mature setting, the fact that you don't have to rely on management for data, it's peer reviewed um, data that's out there open to scrutiny by experts. So it, it diminishes the risk of this sector considerably. To your second question, um, you know, uh, designing a hedge, uh, company-specific hedge, um, there are essentially three things that I do. Um, suppose where one of my large holdings is is approaching a binary readout. Um, in advance of it, I I would like to take advantage of the change in the volatility term structure. So, as if you have a binary event coming up in three to six months. The market generally underprices the volatility of that. So I'm, I'm doing that right now with, for instance, Biogen. I have a calendar strategy on for Biogen. Biogen has a big readout for, um, uh, for a potentially breakthrough drug in multiple sclerosis mid-year. So a month or two ago, I went long the September call options, knowing that the volatility will go up as, as the event approaches. And then as the stock went up, I sold near-term options against that at the same strike. So then you, you benefit from the positive option decay, positive theta, because you're short a shorter dated option, long a longer dated option that benefits right. from the increase in volatility. And so I'm finding a novel way to extract value um, out of the changing expectations as that binary event approaches. So that's one way to take advantage and generate positive returns with low risk right, in advance of a, of a potentially risky event. By the time that event um, approaches, this the option I'm long is virtually free because I've, I've written options against it and I've, I've earned the payback for that option. So I've got a free call option on a potentially big event, right? The second approach is if I own the stock, I may do one of two things. If I think the downside is substantial and the risk is high in the outcome of this phase three trial, I may simply swap out of the stock and into a call option or a call spread going into that readout. If I think the risk is low for the readout of this, I may simply just buy a put or a put spread to hedge and hold on to the stock. So that's my three basic approaches as we get into risky binary outcomes. Wow. And so is this kind of a hedge fund or is it a mutual fund? Like it's the, because I don't hear you're actually doing any sort of physical or, or more synthetic type of uh, shorting, but you're using the options there. How, how does that fit in within like the regulatory frame, frameworks? Yeah, and, and so it's a fully registered mutual fund. In fact, I'm the only fully registered um, biotech mutual fund in Canada. You know, there are lots of large cap health healthcare funds and so on that you get from the banks and the big mutual fund companies, but this is focused really on the mid cap 
um, uh, pre-commercial type companies where we can extract a different form of alpha while trying to de-risk these investments along the way. So it is a mutual fund and it's all within a regulatory framework of uh, the strategies that we use. Wow. And then Ali, how do you, like uh, Eden goes through like the different types of drugs and how they're being, uh, might be accepted by the market, different types of trials and the, you know, 60 or, or 70 or 30% hit rates. Um, how do you look at a drug and define whether, or determine whether it's going to be a winner um, or is it kind of just math? It's already out there. And there's going to be this return stream that's going to come in from the uh, from the pharmaceutical that's going to be selling it, and maybe the only thing is if I don't know, there's, there can't be really be a rival drug. I don't know. What what are your factors that you see playing into that calculation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, obviously, it depends on the situation. There there are instances where a drug has been on the market for some time, um, and uh, you know, so so forecasting a drug like that, where the initial launch ramp has been de-risked to, to a large extent, um, the safety risks have have been uh, mitigated because the drug has been on the market for some time. Uh, so that is a different exercise than a drug that has just been approved and is about to be launched by a company, especially if it's a smaller uh, biotech company and it's not a Pfizer or or Johnson and Johnson. Um, so what you know, we have um, various investment criteria uh, criteria that we consider uh, when we make these royalty investments, and at the most basic level. Uh, what we are looking for are what we call uh, medically necessary products. So we are looking to buy royalties on products that uh, treat critical conditions. So these are drugs that patients have to be on and uh, have to be taking uh, in, a, in order to essentially survive. So we're looking for products that treat uh, rare diseases, uh, cystic fibrosis, severe rheumatoid arthritis, uh, spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, those are the types of products that we'll look for. Um, you know, we, we will stay away from what we call lifestyle products or, you know, right now through this COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through, as you can see, um, as you you have seen, I'm sure is, you know, elective surgeries, for example, are getting uh, pushed out or canceled altogether, you know, so whereas an oncology product uh, that's treating ovarian cancer patients um, is still probably being prescribed because, uh, you know, that's critical to the care of those uh, of those patients. So those are some of the, uh, some of the things uh, that, that we look for. That's a good point. I was just uh, going to segue to something like that, too, because with this the COVID-19 crisis, um, there's billions, I think there are billions, actually going into the, the to uh, creating a vaccine. And we've seen, I think Johnson Johnson said they're going to have three to 500 million doses sometime next year. Uh, so it's a ways away. But maybe can you go through the um, the process of a vaccine and how quickly, maybe if you know how quickly it could be sped up uh, to get it out there and then... Um, and like you mentioned, is, is, that, is this taking away from other innovation that might be occurring? Um, or is that really not too, too big of a deal because everything else is just going to continue on and just kind of layering on the, um, the coronavirus uh, uh, vaccine uh, research? Yeah, and, and I think Eden can probably um, 
uh, chime in on this one as well. But um, you know, d- d- development of of drugs, whether it's a vaccine or any other therapeutic, takes time, um, and you can't really um, take shortcuts. Um, and so, um, you know, Eden alluded to taking products through uh, phase one, phase two, phase three trials. Uh, that is just um, uh, a process that takes time and you have to go through it. You have to uh, assess the safety of these products first in animals and then uh, you and then in human humans and and uh, and then you have to design uh, placebo controlled uh, trials to to prob- properly assess the efficacy of these products in, in human beings and and so th- that is a process that takes months now you know there are companies like moderna right now that um, are using an mrna uh, approach to the development uh, of, of vaccines that could potentially accelerate uh, these timelines but um, i think it's just too early to tell whether the technology will um, succeed. Um, and so, but even there, uh, even with the Moderna, we're talking maybe Q4 of this year at best. Um, and so, um, I think realistically, um, we're at least 12 months away, um, from seeing a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, there are therapeutics, which will, uh, potentially alleviate um, uh, some of the patients that have been infected with the virus. Uh, so, you know, Gilead's product, for example, um, looks somewhat promising, and that's what's moving the markets today. Uh, although uh, the quote-unquote results still appear to be anecdotal, uh, based on what I have seen. Um, so. Uh, yeah, the, you know, those are, uh, th- that's what we should expect in terms of timelines. In terms of COVID-19 taking away from other innovation and so on, I, th- I don't think, I'm not too concerned about that. I think uh, what we are seeing, um, and I'm sure Eden would agree with this, uh, what we are seeing is that um, uh, there is uh, and there has been some impact on uh, clinical trials that um, are being conducted out there. So um, either things are getting delayed in terms of um, um, readouts, and um, you know patients not being able be uh, not being able to come in to get assessed and evaluated if they're a part of a clinical trial, or in terms of launching new wow. clinical trials where you have to recruit patients to launch these trials, those processes are getting put on hold as well because um, uh, physicians and healthcare companies and biotech companies don't want to put these patients uh, at risk by bringing them in into clinics and so on. So that's the kind of impact we're seeing right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What what do you find, Eden? Yeah, um, Ali's correct. Uh, First of all, biology takes time. And uh, there's just no getting away around it. It's just, it's not like, you know, creating software and, and then launching the software into the marketplace. Yeah, and then fixing bugs and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There, there's, there's no option for that. So it takes time and it's due process. Um, uh, and in terms of um, what's out there, you know, there are obviously very different approaches. So you've got, you know, as Ali mentioned, Randesivir data, which again, very anecdotal, you know, one site 
you know, it's a, it's a dramatic overreaction and, you know, it, it will work in the early stage of infection, likely not work, you know, after the viral load has already grown to something substantial. Um, I, but then your, your question about the vaccine, that's, that's very different um, because now you're, you're saying we need to be preventative, you know, so if the vaccine is prophylactic, you're, you're actually injecting, injecting into healthy people as a preventative so that they can develop the antibodies should they be exposed to it, right? So that's a, that's a different thing. So you're now looking at, at putting the vaccine or an attenuated version of the vaccine in healthy people. And so that, that takes time. You have to run the trials and so on. And as Ali mentioned, um, Moderna is moving much faster than, um, than we had in the past, but it's also a completely novel approach because it's using RNA to trigger your body to produce the spike protein, which is completely novel. So again, um, it may be moving faster, but now you're dealing with entirely different mechanism of action to what a traditional vaccine has been, such as what J&J &J and others and you know, countless others are working on right now. So um, you know, I, I said it, 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 I think it's a two-year process to have something. I know we want something. You know, and we'll have, you know, we'll have some medicines in the interim that will help bridge the gap. But I think a vaccine like we have a flu vaccine, I still think that that's a, you know, at best 18 months away. Oh, thanks. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. We're kind of fighting novel with novel uh, new ways and see how it works. I guess. I, would, um, I don't know if this is a good ethical question for you, because, I mean, the, the pharmaceutical companies and drug royalties obviously make money from uh, delivering uh, medicine and, and vaccines and such to people, but uh, for the for the coronavirus, the COVID, do you think that the companies are going to say this is something that we're going to do for people like uh, Dorsey with Twitter and Bill Gates and say, you know what, this is going to be like minimal profit margin, or is it going to be something that's just like just like a, any any type of drug that they they sell? Well, you know what, um, I think a lot of the companies are doing it for humanitarian reasons. So, for instance, and and there are countless examples of this. Uh, for hydroxychloroquine, Novartis made, I think, 5 million doses available for free. Um, you are seeing uh, Gilead with remdesivir. Uh, it basically uh, gave free doses to China. China then promptly turned around and filed IP on Gilead's property in China. And Gilead requested that the FDA rescind its orphan drug status. That would allow other manufacturers to scale up and produce remdesivir. Gilead twice explicitly said, we will not make money from this. J&J &J also will be going into clinical trials in the fall. They said they will make it available at cost or less. So um, it sounds strange, but there is no money to be made in pandemics. Um, so it's really more of a humanitarian um, effort, I think, on behalf of large biopharmaceutical companies. You know, there's some money to be made in the testing and diagnostics, I think, for some of the smaller companies. But for the most part, no, this is this is not the um, the economic windfall that many have mistaken it to be. Anything from you on that, Ali? No, I agree with uh, Eden. I think that's where that's the direction the industry is taking uh, this in, and and uh, and then you know we also don't know how COVID nineteen is going to behave. In the long run, we don't know if this is going to become another seasonal flu or if this is just a one and done 
one time and, and we're done with it uh, type pandemic. Um, and so to the extent it does become some, something like a regular flu, then uh, we're all going to be vaccinated uh, uh, every year, essentially, just like we get flu shots every year. Um, and so I don't think you're going to have price gouging by industry um, on, on any therapeutic and vaccine that comes out of all the work that they're doing this time. And how about generally for investors? I mean, things have, uh, I guess drug royalties are fairly, uh, fairly like they'll, they'll play out and they're not very correlated to the markets. Uh, so I leave a bit of a bit of an interesting, interesting uh, horse in the race there. And then you have Eden with, with uh, un, like some as unprecedented, at least for the last five or 10 years, volatility in the options markets and, and with the, the companies. Um what are you telling investors now that the opportunities might be? Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Ali. Uh, yeah, so uh, you're correct that healthcare royalties in general are quite uncorrelated to to the overall markets. Um, you know, if you look at uh, prescription drug spending over time, um, and you uh, put that curve against the S&P 500 um, over the past 10, 20 years. Um, and for example, if mm-hmm. you focus in on the financial crisis of 08, 09, you'll see that uh, prescription drug spending uh, was not really impacted at all. So, so you know, for example, we have an investment today in an oncology product called Rebraca that treats ovarian cancer patients. Um, and so we don't really expect uh, those uh, uh scripts um, and sales of Rebecca to be really impacted by this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So market volatility uh, like this and dislocations in the markets like this actually uh, do create opportunities for us. Um, uh, and there are two ways that can that, that happens. One is, for example, right now we are in discussions with various uh, various research institutions who are concerned that their funding is going to dry up as uh, capital gets diver- diverted um, towards uh, other areas um, to to deal with this pandemic, um, and some of these institutions have royalty streams. So, in order to bolster the capital budgets, uh, one way to do that is to monetize these royalties. So, those discussions have now become more active. Um, on the other side, on the corporate side of mm-hmm. things, obviously a lot of companies have seen their stock value uh, cut down by sometimes half or more. Um, and so uh, raising equity capital is not very expensive for them. Um, and so considering a non-dilutive sources of financings um, uh, is something that's not top of mind for, the C- for CFOs and board of directors. Um, and so these kinds of market dislocations uh, create uh, pretty large opportunity set for us. Wow, that's amazing! And then Eden, uh, just like you say, like a once in a decade spike in uh, volatility. How, uh, uh, how is how how do you see your portfolio going forward? Yeah, um, like Ali, it creates opportunity for me, but in different ways. And it's interesting because um, oftentimes, uh, because you've got great companies. Uh, such as I like to focus on that are late stage and don't really need to access additional capital in in order to become commercially successful. Um, uh, The the model that that Ali's company provides is that oftentimes companies that I own will tap that model. They will sell royalty streams. 
to raise non-dilutive funding because the cost of equity is so high. You know, so for me, I've seen some absolutely outstanding companies uh, get cut in half in the sell-off. And I've, I've been through so many cycles. I've seen it happen so many times. And you focus on these companies and they come roaring back. Because as Ali pointed out uh, with some of the royalty streams that they own, these companies that we invest in, they are developing life-saving therapies. So you, it's, there is no option to say uh, it's not discretionary spending. Uh, you're not going to act in such a way to not take a medication that's saving your life. And so this is the benefit of the sector I think we're involved in. There is much less economic sensitivity to it. And so for me, um, the other attribute that comes is that over my career, I've had a lot of my companies acquired by big biopharma. So at RBC over 10 years, I've had almost 20 of my companies acquired by other biopharma companies. Since I launched this fund four or five years ago, um, I've had nine of my companies acquired by big biopharma. And it's not by design, it's just how I select companies and where I choose to invest in. And there's a propensity for these, um, uh, these cluster of acquisitions to occur coming off deep sell-offs. So, um, you know, coming off the 2000 to 2003 bear market, we saw something like this. Coming off the 1991 to 1994 bear market, we saw it in 1995 and 1996. You know, we saw it off, off the 2016 sector low. We saw, you know, I had five of my companies acquired in the second half of 2016 when the sector started to recover. Oh. You know, you go back a year ago, remember we had the fourth quarter 2018 sell-off. Well, two of my companies got acquired in the first quarter of 2019. And so I expect that in the second half of this year, you will see big biopharma companies that go shopping. You know, when things stabilize, capital markets stabilize a bit, they'll go shopping. And they typically pay 100 plus percent premiums for the companies that I like to invest in. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunities on, on both sides. This is really, uh, really been a great talk. Um, thank you guys uh, for both your time there, Eden and Ellie. And uh, we'll look forward to having you another uh, another podcast sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.